Uh, we are continuing where we left off last week, talking about uh, postmodernism. And uh, if you recall last week, if you were here, uh, we dealt more with the idea of deconstructionism and, and looking specifically at what that means with regard to texts and how we, how we talk about texts and ideas and, and getting to issues like absolute truth and all of that. And we also talked a bit about postmodern art and architecture and uh, kind of brought up the, the shock effect uh, that uh, many are going for and all of that. And then, of course, we wanted to talk about that in relationship to what we see in Scripture. So uh, this morning we're going to shift gears a little bit, uh, but hopefully as we've been building to this, you'll see uh, how all of this uh, fits together. And this is the ideas of postmodernism um, that today has uh, kind of come under the name or the rubric of, uh, of identity or identity politics is how you hear it. Um, and this, the implications of this in the church are very significant. Um, and so uh, we're going to spend some time here kind of thinking about uh, what the idea is, where it comes from, and, uh, and what those influences have been on the church. So um, if you think about this, there's, there's this question uh, that sort of looms over this discussion and uh, for those who adopt an idea uh, related to identity politics, um, we have to ask the question, what group do you belong to? And it's always trying to find out what group you're in. Uh, who do you identify with? Um, so, uh, again, remember, we built all of this on this foundation that we started with, that these ideas are rooted in a Marxist way of thinking, a Marxist tradition. And one of those things, one of the major things that he brings out in all that he writes and all that he talked about was this idea of the struggle between <coughs> those who have, those who, have, who do not have, those who are oppressed, those who are oppressors, victims, victimizers, all of this. And so what the postmodernists have done, they've taken that out of the economic realm. We're talking about it now in the social realm with relationship to how we relate to one another. And as we do that, we start to get to a place where we formulate this concept. Now, we talked about deconstructionism last time with regard to texts and ideas, uh, but this was developed even further by Jacques Derrida, who created what he called uh, difference in, Fran in, in French. So what that sounds like what? Differ or difference. And to differ, and so to take the meaning of a text and to think about that text in terms of how it differs from something else. So let me explain what that looks like. So if I explain to you that... Um, uh, oh, he's not here. I was going to pick on Alex Reed. But Alex Reed, when you talk about Alex, if you don't really know Alex all that well, I would just say, you know, the guy, he's, he's tall. He's, he's the tallest guy among us. Well, if I mention that you saw Wesley's here. Wesley, you know Wesley, he's, he's really tall. <laughs> And he's going to be taller, right? Uh, so if we say that, what is, what is he standing, no pun intended, in opposition to? If someone's tall, we're going to say he's not short, right? Okay? Um, if, uh, if someone wanted you to explain uh, what I looked like about three years ago, what would you say? He was really rotund. rotund. That's a good word. Thank you. <laughs> That was 
wonderful vocabulary at work. Beautiful, I appreciate that, David. I award you a thousand points, and they're worth nothing. Um, <laughs> thank you. Yes, yes, I still have it. I love it. Um, right, so if someone is, someone is rotund, uh, we think of them in relationship to that versus being skinny. Or, you know, so we have all of these ways. So, uh, to understand the relationship between men and women, we think of a woman, she's not a man. And if we think of an oppressor, you think of the oppressed. And so everything is cast in this form of having to be opposed to something else. And for Derrida, in deconstructionism, it wasn't just the idea that one is different than the other. It was the idea that all of us think, and we all have in our minds, that one is better than the other. And so immediately you start to see where this goes. That now what we're dealing with is not this peaceful coexistence, which he said a peaceful coexistence vis-a-vis. In other words, that the short and tall can live together in peace. No, it's the idea that one uh, has a hierarchy, again, no pun intended, over the other. Right, that one in the minds of people are, uh, one is better than the other. And so when you do that, what you automatically have is what he called a violent hierarchy. And so one of the two terms governs the other. One way of thinking determines what we think about the other. And so deconstructionism, the point of this within the postmodern framework was that we need to overturn this hierarchy. We need to move away from thinking in these kinds of ways, in these kinds of terms. And so the goal is to flip the script. Now, you would think, well, okay, if that's the case, then what we're trying to do then is to make sure that we're, we're leveling the ground, if you will, that we understand something of what we see in Scripture, this biblical concept that Paul talks about, that in Christ, in the gospel, there's neither male nor female, nor Jew nor Greek, nor Scythian nor slave. And he goes through all of this and says, in Christ, we are one, we are equal. There's not one in the body of Christ who has a higher standing before the cross than any other. Um, and we're breaking down all of those barriers. That's, in large part, what he wrote Galatians all about, right? This division that was between the Jews and the Gentiles had been removed because of what Christ had accomplished. In the postmodern framework, you would think if they're saying, well, let's make sure that we don't have this violent hierarchy and that to think of a man is to think uh, that he is the one who has dominance and the woman is, is being violently oppressed, um, so let's level the field. Well, that's not what they wanted to do. Uh, the idea instead was to deconstruct the opposition, to flip the script so that women is the positive, and men is the negative, or, uh, or short becomes the positive, and tall becomes the negative, or however you want to think, any difference that you can think of. Now, those are, uh, those are fairly uh, benign terms that we're using, but we see how those start to play out when all of a sudden those terms become things like black and white, or Hispanic, or Jewish, or Muslim. Right? So now, all of a sudden, this becomes something that has implications that are quite significant, and we see how those start to play out. 
See, to Derrida, the hierarchy of terms is culturally constructed, and so we have to overturn that. But again, the overturning is not a matter of equalizing. It's a matter of taking those who were, uh, under his framework, supposedly being oppressed in this violent hierarchy and now giving them the role of dominance. So what does that begin to do? What is that, how does that start to play out? Well, that gets to now where we're not entering into relationships. If we're going to adopt this mentality, we're not entering into relationships thinking about the ways that we are similar. We're not trying to find ways that we can connect with one another and find common ground to stand upon in solidarity with one another. No, now immediately we're looking at what are our differences. How are we in opposition to one another? And in doing so, how can I find whether or not I have the upper hand in this relationship? What, in what ways can I sort of identify uh, so that I am the one who can find what my supposed status is as a victim or as one who is not in the place of dominance here according to culture, and therefore I need to flip the script. Um, So, What's the biblical concept? Well, the biblical concept is that all of us are created how? Equal, right? There's, there, there are roles that we play as men and women, but in terms of our, uh, our rights before God and our rights before man, there is absolute equality. One's not better than the other, and as people, all of us, if you get down to brass tacks, all of us are sinners in need of Christ. We're all in need of redemption. There is no difference regardless of where you're from, what color you are, or anything else. Um, So that's the biblical conception. Now, in the postmodern sort of deconstructionist ideas, all of us are immediately born into something uh, that we begin from day one to determine uh, how we're going to look at this person. Well, you'll see where this starts. Um, <clears throat> logically, that makes sense, but you start to see where it breaks down because, and that's even some of the conversation that we have today with regard to, um, okay, we have these sort of absolute claims, uh, but what happens when a person no longer identifies as either man or woman, but rather says, I'm, I'm Zed or Zim um, or 96 other pronouns we want to use. Um, so, that has to fit because we're trying to fit these ideas together. And so now, uh, you're right, but the, the way that they seek consistency is to say, well, we talk about it in these ways because that's the way that it's talked about culturally, but if we want to expand the borders of that, we need to do that. And so we're starting to, uh, and so then you get into inventing new language. Remember last week we talked about... Um, <coughs> how language is, uh, is the letters in language are symbols that stand for certain things. So when I put the symbols, see what I call the symbol C-O-W, and I put those together, it forms a word that stands in for the word cow. And, uh, and so when I say that, you have a picture in your mind of what a cow is, but um, in the deconstructionist worldview, if I say cow and you want to think chair instead of cow, you can do that because it's just a symbol. It's not, an actual, it's not an actual thing. So <clears throat> now when I say man, 
uh, you can have any kind of idea of what we want to say about man. So we start to broaden the boundaries in doing so. And so what, does, what happens with language? Well, it starts to become more meaningless, ultimately, is what happens. And that's a big part of the goal, that we start to deconstruct meaning, hence the name. Um, and so when that happens, when this idea of difference is applied... The oppressed party gets to determine what is and what is not acceptable and accepted. And so now the one who is supposedly oppressed has the upper hand. And so in the 21st century in Western culture, the statement of actions of dominant or oppressive or privileged individuals, um, often those are identified as, uh, in our culture, as people who are most often um, going to be white males, particularly those of high economic achievement and, and, uh, and uh, who are Christians, uh, that cause, that they, being who they are, uh, cause offense to those who are the oppressed minority, just simply by existing. Now, we're not talking about what maybe they have done or how they've done it or what they've said or how they've said it. That's an issue. We need to talk about that and deal with that because that's important but simply by existing, that has become an oppressive reality. So, um, those things, those ways of identifying that person, that that's a uh, Hispanic female of a certain economic class raised in a one-parent home, all, each one of those is a different category, a different group to belong to. And when you put all of those together now, you, you sort of can rank them on the scale of how oppressed are they and therefore how much do we need to listen to what they're saying because the more victimized you are based on the group you're in, the more status you should be given in terms of being able to identify what reality is. And so our mere existence can be what is now called a microaggression. Um, let me give you an example of what this looks like. And this is with regard uh, to uh, racial microaggressions in everyday life. There's an article from the American psychologist called Racial Microaggressions in Everyday Life. And it was, this is written to clinicians called Implications for Clinical Practice. And here's, here's what the author wrote. Uh, she said, The power of racial microaggressions lies in their invisibility to the perpetrator and oftentimes the recipient. Most white Americans experience themselves as good, moral, and decent human beings who believe in equality and democracy. Thus, they find it difficult to believe that they possess biased racial attitudes and may engage in behaviors that are discriminatory. Microaggressive acts can usually be explained away by seemingly non-biased and valid reasons. For their receipt of a microaggression, however, there is always the nagging question of whether it really happened. And so, what does this look like? Well, we get some examples of what that is. There's a, there was a chart in this, and, and you get all these things. So, for example, if I, as a, uh, a white American, went up to someone who was uh, a black American and said, where are you from, or where are you born, that is, according to the writers of this, a microaggression, because the, what they're supposedly hearing is, you are not an American. You are a foreigner in my land. Or to say 
something to someone like, everyone can succeed in America if they work hard enough. Well, that is if someone is of a, uh, a supposed oppressed group uh, that we're telling them through microaggression that they're lazy and incompetent and they need to work harder. Um, and so there's a whole list of these things. You know, things that we say in common everyday uh, conversations. So when you meet someone new, what are some of the questions you often ask? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? All these kinds of things, which seem to be fairly innocent questions, trying to get to know a person. Um, but according to this framework, to ask those questions to certain people, from certain people, is to introduce microaggressions into the relationship. And so by doing that, we are asserting our dominance. We're asserting our authority over that person. And, uh, and in, in doing that, if they don't speak up or work against that, uh, then we are taking the place of privilege and using that against them. So, what's happening here? If, if that's how we're going to go through life and think about life, living together in community, how does that play out? How should we be thinking about that in terms of Scripture? Let's, let's sort of hit pause on their ideas and think about this in relationship to what we know to be true from Scripture. What are your thoughts? Let's think of it this way. In terms of our relationships with one another, what has Christ accomplished in the gospel? that speaks to all of this. Yeah. Excellent. The, the reality of the cross is, as we said before, that we're all created equal, and in that being created equal, we're created as broken, sinful people in need of redemption. And so the greatest inequality was not between man and man. The greatest inequality was between man and God. And in Christ giving himself on our behalf, that inequality has been taken care of in him in that, not that we're equal with God, but that we now have access to God and we can have relationship with God. And in terms of our relationships with one another, whatever inequalities there, that do exist, and there are inequalities that do exist in society, that in Christ, in the church, those things are eliminated in terms of how we relate to one another. The Bible is full of instruction about this, right? What is one of the things, James goes really hard after the church uh, in the book of James for, uh, for several things, <laughs> but one thing in particular was in how they were relating to one another. Does anyone, can anyone recall the book of James? What is he going after in the church that people were doing and they were prone to do in terms of their relationship to one another? Yeah, excellent. <laughs> James was dealing with the reality that people were coming into the church who uh, were very wealthy and other people were coming in who had no wealth at all. Well, what was, what was happening? Well, the church was treating those with significant wealth in a very different way than they were treating those who didn't have anything at all. And he was telling them, stop, knock that off. Why? Because your money in the church, in terms of status or how we look at you, doesn't matter. What we're looking at is our status in Christ. 
Are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, we, we hold this in common, and that is far greater than anything else that we can look at. That's why Christians can go anywhere in the world where there are other Christians, and we instantly have unity with other people, with other brothers and sisters. No matter what language they speak, no matter what they look like, no matter the conditions they live in, we are one in Christ Jesus. And so James was looking at what the church was doing and saying, well, you're giving privilege to those who are rich over those who are poor. Knock that off. Don't do that. When you do that, you are perpetuating something that goes on in the world that should never go on in the church. Yeah, Russ. Yeah, good. Excellent. The idea of what the Bible tells us to do and tells us how to be, and we'll look at this a bit in our sermon this morning as well, is that what the constant call, and especially as Jesus is preaching, the constant call to die to ourselves and to live for the advantage of the other person, to not identify with me what kind of victim can I make myself out to be and therefore assert that victim status in order to gain dominance in a relationship. Instead of that, to say, you may think low of me, um, but I'm going to continue to die to myself in order to live for your advantage and not my own. It's a complete opposite, as Russ is saying, of everything that's being promoted by these kinds of ideas. Now, all of this uh, is coming out more and more culturally. Um, and uh, I, could, I could stand here this morning and give you, uh, the, spend the rest of our time giving you uh, all kinds of examples. I'll give, you, I'll give you two just so we can see how this plays out. And obviously, uh, no, uh, no secret that the, the conversation with regard to this most often or most prominently relates to discussions with regard to ethnicity. Now, before I give you the examples, let's Let's just talk about the language that's used, right? We talk about race and racism. That's the, that's the common language. How many races are there? One. And what is it called? Human, right? We are one race. We are one people, right? Now, ethnicity is a different thing. And if you notice, in any culture, people move in and out of where they are in terms of their ethnic group. Um, like I mentioned last week in our introduction to our sermon, uh, if you spend enough time in a certain place, you start to, uh, you start to sound a little bit different. Uh, the way you say things, the way you communicate with people, all of that changes, right? You, you people who are born and bred Southerners, if someone comes here from New Jersey or New York, you know instantly that they're a little bit different, right? But if they're here long enough, 15 years, 20 years, the way they talk, the things they say, the way they say it, starts to change a little bit, right? And so we move in and out of these ethnic groups, and, uh, and we, we change as a result of doing that. And so that's something that there's, there's transition that takes place. But in terms of our race, that's who we are as a people. We're not we're not monkeys, we're not, uh, we're not cats, we're not dogs. We're humans. And so that's one thing I think the Bible really emphasizes that 
If we identify the humanity in all of us, created in the image of God, that really changes the conversation, doesn't it? It changes the way we talk about these things. Now, I'm not trying to downplay the the reality of what sin introduced into the world with regard to how we actually think about and look at each other. That's an issue that we need to deal with and talk about. But as Christians, we need to first and foremost identify our humanity created in God's image and think about one another on those terms as opposed to instantly thinking about each other in terms of whatever our ethnic group is and how we identify along those lines. Well, this whole idea of identity deconstruction, I'll give you two examples of what this looks like. One example, when this reasoning is applied, uh, there was a group at Cornell University called the Black Students United at Cornell, and they submitted a list of 12 demands of their university president, and uh, one of those was that they wanted mandatory coursework that deals with issues of identity, such as race, class, religion, ability, status, sexual and romantic orientation, gender, citizenship status, etc. They said, quote, we want this coursework to be explicitly focused on systems of power and privilege in the United States and center on the voices of oppressed people. They said that they demanded that Cornell admissions come up with a place to actively increase the presence of underrepresented black students on campus. We define underrepresented as black Americans who have several generations, more than two, in this country. So what are they saying? They're saying we want, um, we want our admissions to this school to happen in such a way uh, that uh, we are considering, first, above all else, we're considering where they come from. And in fact, them being of a certain ethnicity and a certain color is not enough. They have to be of a certain ethnicity uh, generationally. And so, what were they doing? Well, effectively, they were saying, if we have students coming from Africa, they don't, they're not included in this because they're not living, they didn't grow up living in the way uh, that we have had to live in America, which, if you've ever been to Africa, is a ridiculous assertion, um, to say the least. Okay, so um, how does that play out? Well, if you're African-American, you've grown up here, you're several generations uh, in, in terms of your family in America, uh, then it's assumed that your family has experienced forms of racism along the way, and therefore uh, there's this reparation or there's compensation that comes with that. And that comes by the way of college admissions and, and all these sorts of things. If you've come, if you've immigrated from Africa, well, you don't have those generational things, and so therefore you don't get to have the same status as that's being looked at. Well, that played out big time in, uh, at, at Harvard University with Asian Americans, there's a group of Asian Americans that are now suing Harvard because they learned that in Harvard's admissions policies, uh, they were, uh, even though they met all of the, these students were meeting all of the requirements in terms of service, in terms of grades, in terms of test scores and everything else, they were far superior to many others who were applying, uh, but they thought there were too many Asians getting into Harvard, and so they stopped accepting uh, many of them. And so they set their stuff aside and gave... Uh, to others who 
and, and it was anyone else who uh, was of not achieving in the same way. So the whole idea of, of merit, of, of being a meritocracy, was thrown out the window. And now all of a sudden, uh, you have Asian Americans who are being discriminated against because of these statuses, right? Because what are we looking at? Remember, what we've talked about is, is what, are we, what do we want to see in the end? Well, not equality of opportunity, but equality of outcome. That the outcome would be something that we can look at across the board. So representationally, that we're seeing the same outcomes. And what is the, the most glaring thing that we want to look at? Well, in these cases, it's not economic status, it's not uh, regional status or anything else, it's color of skin. Now, for all the talk about racial inequality, the things that are being asked for here are things like, well, we need safe spaces for, uh, for people of various ethnic categories. And so what are we doing there? If we, if, if we as a church, we said, okay, well, um, the safe space for all of our black members is in the 100 building, the safe space for our Asian members is in the 200 building, and the safe space for our... What are we, we're segregating, Right? What is the church? What is Jesus calling us to do? The exact opposite. We're not segregating. We're coming together as the people of God to worship God together because we are all people who are humans as one in Christ. Yeah. Right. This is what Paul dealt with again in Galatians with Peter who pushed himself away from the table with the Gentiles when the Judaizers showed up, right? I don't, I don't want them to see me with them because they'll think less of me or whatever else was going on in Peter's mind. So, again, are there issues that we have to deal with with regard to um, discrimination, with regard to past uh, sins of a nation, all of these sorts of things? Of course, of course. We can't disregard those and cast those out and say they don't matter or they never have mattered or there aren't implications that have arisen as a result of that. Um, but in many ways, to apply these postmodern principles of deconstructionism and looking at our identities as ways to, um, to gain one-upsman status is sort of rewinding things, right? Pulling us back into a place where now we're going to separate more instead of come together. Instead of finding unity, in, instead of finding ourselves together in humanity as those created in God's image, now we're going to identify in different ways. How has this played out in the church? Well, uh, over the last two years, it's played out in several ways. One example I'll give you is a conference that was held um, at, a, uh, at a seminary uh, last year. It's historically a fairly conservative seminary. And yet, it was a conference for African-American women. And they said, if you're not an African-American, and so with that, you can be African, you can be uh, white, you can be Asian, whatever else, you're welcome to come, but you need to sit in the back and you cannot speak. You need to listen. This was at a Christian seminary now think about what we're doing now. We want to have conversations, apparently, that are going to heal some of these wounds 
and bring us together as the body of Christ that we can rise above the cultural conversation and say we are one in Christ and this is what our relationship should look like. And instead we're saying, you can come, but you need to sit there and you can't talk. Why? Because you, you couldn't possibly understand how we live and what we go through. You couldn't possibly understand our plight. And so the best thing for you to do is to just be quiet. Well, if I can't have conversations about these things, how am I ever going to learn if there's something I need to learn? To just sit and listen. Or to not be able to have a voice in the conversation. Right? Isn't that the very thing that was the problem in the first place that we've tried to eliminate? Is that there were people who were voiceless in many ways. There were people who were being segregated in such a way that they weren't able to have a place where they, were, they could be a part of the conversation at the table to talk. And so now we say, okay, so we'll give, there is place for this conversation to take place, but you know what? We flipped the script, and because your people have had dominance in some way, we're going to eliminate you from the conversation, and now you just need to listen. Yeah, not letting our, however we're identifying, and those aren't, in and of themselves, are not necessarily wrong things. They're just realities. I can't, I can't change. The Bible even makes comment on this. I can't change the color of my skin. I can't change who my parents are, the family I came from. Right? There's nothing wrong with someone who makes a lot of money or someone who, um, who, who does it. This isn't, these aren't things that we look at and say they're wrong or right. They're just realities that we exist in. Therefore, the call of the Bible all through, especially in the New Testament, is to say, don't look at those things in terms of how you relate to one another. Relate to one another in terms of our common unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel has accomplished. If we're not going to look at it in those terms then we're never going to be able to be this light in a world that continues to bring these things up. Right? Our, if given opportunity, all of us in our flesh would love nothing more than to be able to find what ways that we are able to assert some form of dominance over other people and to take full advantage of that. That's the desire of the flesh. All of us want that in our flesh. There's no way around it. It's only in Christ that we get to a place where we say, as we said before, not how do I assert dominance. How can I die to myself for the good of these people? How can I die to myself and live for their advantage instead of my own? Look, a lot of these conversations about these things, especially in the climate currently in the West, can be very uncomfortable. But they don't have to be, especially in the church, especially among Christians. This is why several years ago, I don't know if a lot of you probably remember, James Eady sat here with me on the stage, and we had this conversation in part in front of everyone. And we may do that again because that's an important thing. And we have, him and I have these conversations all the time. Um, and this is, this is the common ground that we're able to share. I've learned things from him. He's learned things, I think, from me. And we're able to talk about that as brothers in Christ as opposed to um, coming together and saying, well, before we start this conversation, let's talk about what color you are, 
um, where you came from, how much money you make, and all of these things. So we can rank ourselves, and simply by ranking ourselves based on these things, now your opinion means more or less based on that. Right? That, is, that is an insane way of interacting with other people. Think of the insanity. And when does it stop? Right? What if you have two uh, Asian American women who are uh, from poverty, who are, um, um, I don't know, you just go down the, the row. They're both homosexual, they're both, you know, whatever it is. You just, what happens when six or seven of their ways of identifying are exactly the same? Well, we got to keep going until we find the thing. And so we further divide ourselves as opposed to finding our unity. And so as the world, as the culture has this conversation, as the church, we need to be the ones who are saying the whole idea of identity politics, the whole idea of deconstructing reality in terms of our oneness in Christ and our humanity being created in God's image, all of that talk is utter nonsense. It's evil, and it's designed to the delight of the evil one to pull us apart versus what the church is called to be and to do, which is to have our arms wide open to receive one another, to love one another, regardless of who you are or where you're from or what your status in the world is. Some people ask, um, and I'll, I'll end with this. This is a little bit of a aside, but um, sometimes, and I'm not, I'm not saying this isn't the case in other places. It's a decision that we've made as, as a church and as your elders. One of the reasons why we don't, have, um, we don't have an American flag present in our church is because the church is not American, right? We're Americans, and that's, that's fine and good and, uh, and something that I'm, I'm very happy with, and obviously I I fought for our country in the military and everything else. I don't have any problems identifying as an American. I love my country. Nevertheless, when you come here among God's people, we're not gathering as the, as the American church. We're gathering as Christians. And so whether you're from Nigeria or uh, you were adopted from China or uh, you, uh, you look Irish or you want to be Irish because it's St. Patrick's Day or whatever else, the issue is we come together as the people of God, not as people from other nations. And so we don't, we don't want to, to make something symbolically present that would, would say, if, if you don't identify with this, uh, then you don't identify with us. What we identify with is Christ, and we hear from Christ, from the Word of God, and we partake together at the same table of the body and blood of Christ representationally as we commune with him, as we commune with one another. That's the vision of reconciliation that the church ought to have. That's the vision of identity that we ought to have. I identify most ultimately, prominently with Christ and his people, no matter what they look like, no matter where they come from. 